0: Welcome to City Church Life on Life podcast, where the goal is to see lives transformed through vulnerable, honest conversations around God's Word. Our theme this week is Union with Christ, the key verse from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're going to talk about union with Christ and I'll warn you from the front, you'll have to use your imagination. We need to talk about this word imagination because it often gets a bad rap today. We think it has to do with fiction or fairy tales, something not real. Hence our phrase, oh, that's just your imagination. But imagination is that distinctly human capacity by which we image anything and everything that's not immediately visible to our eyes. What does your mother look like? I just caused you to use your imagination. But the fact is we use our imaginations all the time. You use your imagination to image what is real But not visible. Different from seeing what is unreal, imagination is used to see what is unseen. One way to think about the Christian life, not the only way, but a too little used way, the Christian life is about having our imagination taken captive and reshaped by a new story. Once you start looking for it, the call to the imagination fills the pages of the Bible. When Paul writes, Set your mind on things that are above. He's not talking about looking up. He is calling to our imagination. The biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann once wrote, "...the key pathology of our time is the reduction of the imagination so that we are too numbed and satiated to do any serious imaginative work." He's saying that our imaginations have been taken captive by other stories, so much so that we can no longer hear the story God is telling us about who we are in His world. We're going to need our imaginations today because we're going to talk about what is foundational to living out this new story, and that is our union with Christ. How much have you heard about union with Christ? If you're anything like me, not much. I first heard about union with Christ from a theologian named John Calvin, who said it needs to be accorded the highest degree of importance. He wrote, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. I'd never heard it put like this, that to be saved means to be united to the Savior. But C.S. Lewis wrote, How is it possible for us to share in the life of Christ The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. John Owen, England's greatest theologian, wrote, Union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and most glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. And Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, added, By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he doth really possess all things. Those are impressive names telling us this is of first importance. And yet I wondered, why had I never heard of it before? Where is this in the Bible? The major writer of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, never once uses the word Christian. But there is a phrase he uses over and over. So brief, it's easy to read right over as insignificant. But some 160 times, give or take, Paul says that we are in Christ. In Christ. It's almost impossible to overstate how important that little phrase is for the Apostle Paul. No phrase bears more weight for him. In the elusive search for the center of Paul's theology, the scholar Constantine Campbell claims that union with Christ is, if not the center, at least the key to understanding Paul's theology. Theologian John Murray concluded nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Union with Christ It is the highest privilege of the Christian life because greater than any gift God gives us in the gospel, justification, our adoption, even heaven, greater than all these, the greatest gift that God gives us is himself. God is the gospel. But it's only our union with Christ that makes our communion with God possible for us. So we should ask, if nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ, why is union with Christ neither central nor basic to most of us? Why, when asked, what is the gospel, would union with Christ not spring to our minds? This forgotten truth isn't how the gospel is often talked about, and that has very real consequences. It's worth pondering what happened to union with Christ. But for today, I want to move to what it is and just one implication for our recapturing this rich biblical doctrine. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are in Christ. See, if it's true that in Christ is the very key to understanding the entire New Testament, then let's linger over that phrase, in Christ. How can one person be in another, much less someone from whom we're separated by time and space? Scholars have sometimes referred to this under the heading of a corporate personality, a leader who represents a people or a group. To be in Christ means that Christ represents us thoroughly and vicariously. Think of a sports team. When the forward on the soccer team scores the winning goal, That goal and the victory are credited to the entire team, even the players sitting on the bench, even the fans sitting in the stands or sitting on their sofas at home. They participate in the victor's triumph. In the same way, we live through the life of another, and every part of Christ's life and Christ's victory has significance for us. Christ's obedience has significance for us. His suffering changes our own. He was raised for us. He ascended into heaven where he is seated, Colossians 3 verse 1 says. And even this ascension has implications for us. This gets heady pretty quickly, so here's a picture. When I was in junior high school, I played football at an organized team for the first time, and my size gave our team a distinct advantage. You see, I was the smallest player on the field. I was so small that when I had the ball, the opposing team had a difficult time tackling me because they couldn't see me. When we had to have the yards, our go-to play was called Refrigerator Right. We called it that because our coach set the biggest guy on our team, Andrew, in front of me as a blocker and had our quarterback hand me the ball. With Andrew leading the way, one man made a way for another. I was completely obscured by his strength and powerful work, but running to freedom. Everything that was supposed to hit me hit Andrew. He blazed a path for me against hostile forces and made a way to glory. You could say I was hidden in Andrew. The Bible says of those who belong to Christ that he represents us so completely that whatever is true of Jesus is now true of us who are in him. For you have died, Paul writes to his very living, breathing audience, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden in Christ, Everything that was supposed to hit us, even the judgment of God for our sins, hit Jesus. Jesus was condemned in our place. He blazed a path for us against hostile forces and made a way to glory. So thoroughly does Christ represent those who come to be his, that we are said to have been crucified with him, Galatians 2.20, buried with him, Romans 6.4, and raised with him, Colossians 3.1. And we are now even said to be seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6, even though we are now obviously seated where you're listening to this podcast. Did you know Paul had to invent new words to capture this reality? Crucified with, raised with, buried with, seated with. Those phrases, each one word in Greek, never existed before the Apostle Paul coined them. He had to invent new words to understand who he now was because of who Jesus is. Jesus' great prayer in John 17 ends with him praying to his Father that we might know we are loved, quote, even as, Jesus says, you have loved me. See, that's union with Christ. That we might come to believe that whatever is true of Jesus in God's eyes is now true of us, so much so that God loves us even as he loves his own son. In Christ All those things we crave, to be known and accepted, to be safe and secure, we have in Christ. Everything hinges on these two words, but that's only half of it. Union with Christ also means Christ is in you. In the Gospel of John, the disciples are troubled because Jesus told them he must go away. Sensing their sorrow, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How could Jesus going away possibly be to their advantage? Jesus clarifies, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So much ink has been spilled to translate that word, translated helper, sometimes translated comforter, counselor, advocate, or friend, that the startling word preceding it is often overlooked. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another? Well, who has always been their comforter, counselor, advocate, and friend? Do you ever envy the disciples or think how amazing it must have been to have seen Jesus in the flesh and hear his voice and walk beside him? But we have something the disciples did not have. Christ was with them, beside them on the way. And the only thing better than having Christ with you from time to time is having Christ within you, inside you, wherever you are and wherever you go. That's the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, Colossians 1.27. That's why it's better Jesus went away so that he could be with them and us in a far more intimate way than he could ever be when he walked on earth. Paul concludes one of his letters by asking, Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is within you? And I'm suggesting that no, we do not realize this about ourselves. Sinclair Ferguson writes, To have the Holy Spirit means nothing less than to have the incarnate, obedient, crucified, and resurrected reigning Lord dwelling within us. So, that's union with Christ. That's it. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's all. (laughs) I don't think it's hyperbole to say that you'll never hear any more wonderful promise in your life than union with Christ. We said being in Christ means having your imagination taken captive and reshaped by a new story that causes you to reinterpret all the data of your life. Here's a picture. Most of us have at one time or another wondered, are those really my parents? Or perhaps I was switched at birth. Now imagine if your parents were mean and critical and you were always a disappointment to them. But one day, sifting through old papers in the attic, you discovered that you had in fact been abducted as a baby, that those weren't your parents after all, they're criminals, that your real mom was a painter at the Sorbonne in Paris, and your real dad was a Nobel scientist and a professional basketball player. And you thought to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I am extraordinary, I knew it all the time. Now that's a fantastic story, but you get it. Such a discovery would cause you to reinterpret everything you knew about your life, where you came from, your true identity, your capacities and capabilities, your future, and you'd have the DNA to prove it. After that day, your life would never be the same. But here's the thing, it had always been true of you. It had been true of you the day before you made that discovery. It was rooted in history, but your life did not change until you discovered what had always been the truth underlying your life. And yet until that moment, it remained hidden from your sight. I dare say you'd walk out of that attic, and you can walk out of this room today with new eyes for everything and everyone, a new identity. And you actually do have the DNA to prove it, the Holy Spirit. And now we get to walk out and learn to live this new life. It will take our imagination to lay hold of what's already true. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. Now, the implications are limitless, but let's just focus on one question and see how union with Christ reframes it. And that question is, how can we change? Wise spiritual counselors give us conflicting advice as to the root of our problem and the way to move forward. In the main, there are two dominant voices on offer in the church today. One you could call the way of extravagant grace— just believe, and the other you could call the way of radical discipleship, just obey. No one wants to pit these against one another, but we often can't help but hear them as two different songs playing in our heads. Imagine each of these songs with its own volume knob. As we turn up the volume on one, we often instinctively turn down the volume on the other. If we try to hear them both simultaneously, we often think we have to listen at half volume. I first heard the song of extravagant grace in my early 20s through the writings of Brennan Manning. God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be. The message of grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, wraps him up and throws a party. No ifs, ands, or buts, Manning said. Grace works without asking anything of us, he wrote. And because we're relentless in trying to justify our lives, we can't hear this song of grace often enough. We need to hear it full volume in all of its shocking candor. Only those who believe will obey. Believe the gospel of grace. Come and rest. And yet, after having heard the song of grace over and over, when I looked at my life... I began to feel like a fraud. Yes, grace covers this too, but why wasn't I changing more? Just to believe the gospel was beginning to sound threadbare. As I was agonizing over these questions, I was introduced to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave a very different description of the major problem facing us today. For Bonhoeffer, the great illness of the church is not our lack of familiarity with grace, but rather our overfamiliarity with it. He once said, The word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. And that's exactly what I'd been doing. Using the grace of God as an excuse not to follow Jesus. This message sounded very different from grace works without asking anything from us. In calling the church back to discipleship, Bonhoeffer found an American successor of sorts in Dallas Willard who charged the church with diminishing the good news into what he called a gospel of sin management. Together, Bonhoeffer and Willard gave a markedly different diagnosis of what is most ailing, the church today, and consequently a different prescription for health. Willard and Bonhoeffer both turn up the volume of the song, Follow Jesus, and because we are prone to excuse ourselves with the consolations of grace, we need to hear voices that turn up the call to follow Christ all the way to full volume. Only those who obey will believe. Obey Jesus, come and die. And yet this message left me more exhausted than ever. These writers were my heroes and people of deep piety, but for my part, I lacked a category to hold all these voices together. The gospel of grace that requires nothing from us and the gospel of radical discipleship that demands everything. Which is it, come and rest? or come and die. We suspect that's a false choice. We know it doesn't have to be either or. We know both messages are thoroughly biblical and sorely needed. We can see how either message by itself can be dangerous. The call to be radical can leave you exhausted, but the call to be ordinary can make you apathetic. No one wants to pit these songs against one another, but how do we hold them both together? If you only say only those who believe will obey that is cheap grace and that's damnation. But if you only say only those who obey will believe, that is salvation by works and that too is damnation. How can we sing both these songs together full volume? Extravagant grace and radical discipleship meet in the person of Jesus. After all, wasn't this the man who welcomed prostitutes and yet who told his own disciples, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Becoming a Christian means more than believing Christ did certain things for you long ago. While it is wonderful news that we can now be found right with God outside of ourselves, it's even more wonderful that Christ himself is not outside of us. The Holy Spirit actually unites you to Christ. If you're in Christ, Christ has truly made himself one with you. Christ joins his life to ours in such an intimate way that the prevailing metaphor for this union in the Bible is marriage. And because of your union with Christ, the songs of extravagant grace and radical discipleship can no more be separated in you than Christ himself can be torn in two. By living in union with him, we receive what one theologian called a double grace. By double grace, he meant, to use the Bible's own words, that both justification and sanctification flow out of our union with Christ. To illustrate this double grace, he used a picture from nature the light and heat from the sun. Christ, our righteousness, is the sun. Justification, its light, sanctification, its heat. The sun is at once the sole source of both, such that its light and heat are inseparable. At the same time, only light illuminates and only heat warns, not the reverse. Both are always present, without the one becoming the other. From the one sun come light and heat, each distinct, yet life is not possible without both. Union with Christ allows us to hold together the demands of Jesus alongside the grace of Jesus in a way that enhances both without canceling either. Union with Christ enables you to hear the high call of Christ, but not as a bar to live up to, but as an ennobling compliment to live live into, to press up, further up and further in to what is already yours in Christ. The Apostle Paul put it, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Because neither song alone is sufficient to change us. Just believe the gospel leaves you with the suspicion you must not believe enough. That song can leave you cynical. Obey Jesus more can lead you to the terrifying possibility that you are one of the ones to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. That can leave you ashamed and exhausted. Because I can't change my mold. That's right, but you are in Christ. And the work of Christ sets you free from sin's penalty so you can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence in Christ. Only those who who believe can obey. At the same time, Christ is in you. Having the Holy Spirit means the resurrected Lord is within you. And the person of Christ now sets you free from sin's power. Only those who obey can believe. The Union with Christ is the song we need to hear today. The song of grace without union with Christ becomes an impersonal, cold arithmetic. The song of discipleship without union with Christ becomes a joyless duty, a never-ending hill that can leave you exhausted. Union with Christ holds together what so many of us are struggling to hold together. It allows us to sing of a grace that asks nothing of us to love us. Amazing grace but demands everything from us, my soul, my life, my all. That's union with Christ. We'll see you next week.